0: I'm just very pleased to have Maria snigavaya uh, with us uh, today for her lecture. Um, she is a, currently a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and also a postdoctoral uh, scholar at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech. Um, uh, I sure work came to, to uh, my attention uh, in the various journals that she publishes in, but also through a project that uh, she's collaborating with um, the Center for European Policy Analysis and the Levada Center on Modernizing Russia, and she has uh, co-authored uh, several really interesting papers, uh, which she's not going to talk about today, but just so that you know she's done things other than what she's talking about uh, today. Uh, she earned her PhD at Columbia, and she has a candidate uh, in economics and a BA in economics and finance from the Higher School of Economics. Um, as I mentioned, she's published in a wide variety of different journals, uh, including West Europe European Politics, the Journal of Democracy and Post-Soviet Affairs. Um, She's gonna be speaking today about a paper that she published in uh, Post-Soviet Affairs called Guns to Butter, uh, Sociotropic Concerns and Foreign Policy Preferences in Russia. Uh, So with that, I'll turn it over to Maria and we look forward to a very interesting and stimulating discussion. Thank you very much,
1: Catherine, for the introduction. I am now going to share my screen all right i hope everything's good and visible to everyone correct excellent so thank you so much for the center for russia east europe and central asia for having me today i'm really honored to be presenting to such a professional and knowledgeable audience and as uh, Catherine correctly pointed out i actually focus on eastern europe and russia and the interesting interplay in which their domestic and foreign policy end up influencing uh, the developments in these countries. Today's presentation is essentially one of the research I have done on this topic. The presentation is entitled, Guns uh, to Butter. And specifically, I present the results of uh, my uh, experimental survey, in which I tried to answer the question, to what extent the existing economic constraint limit the foreign policy options available to uh, Kremlin elites. Uh, usually, uh, when we talk about the Kremlin's foreign policy, uh, the discussion focuses more on so supply side, so to speak, on what the Kremlin elites want, what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve. And uh, my argument is this paper is that it's important to also bring b- back the uh, bottom-up approach, so to speak, the, um, the constraints that the preferences of the population, the economic uh, resources actually impose on the options available for the criminal Why is this relevant? Well, um, I mean, at this point since 2014, I think we all understand the importance that, and the role that the criminal policy, foreign policy decisions play in our, in our lives especially for Ukrainians, but also to some extent to the United States, given the ongoing um, social media interference um, in uh, the U.S. domestic process. Therefore, I think this is sort of the questions that are very important for us to understand, especially in light of the ongoing protests in Belarus and the rumors that have been spreading, especially last year in the last fall about possible Kremlin's you know, incursion into Belarus, to what extent that is likely. And in today's presentation, I will try to address at least somewhat some of these questions. Um, As already has been mentioned, some of the results of this um, analysis have been published in Post-Soviet Affairs and also um, in the fall, I published more of an opinion article at, uh, on uh, Monkey Cage Political Science blog on Washington Post similarly kind of explaining how uh, this analysis may be used to trying to understand um, Kremlin's options in Belarus today. Now, uh, when it comes to the plan the structure of today's lecture, I will start start by setting up the problem, explaining what it is, what sort of relationship may be uh, postulated. Hypothesized uh, between foreign policy preferences of the population and the economic constraints. Uh, review the existing literature briefly. Uh, explain the existing of Russia's domestic context and to what extent these arguments and hypotheses are applicable uh, to contemporary domestic situation in Russia. And ultimately present the result of the experimental survey, which tries to essentially uh, post- test this relationship the Background. And here I wow. use the picture, <laughs> uh, generously uh, provided by the organizers. Uh, guns to butter. When we talk about guns to butter, usually we refer to the ex- so called trade off between military and consumer spending that uh, exists at the authorities, at the um, government's mm, uh, disposal. If a certain government invests more in its military, given the budget uh, constraints, it has to reduce uh, household consumption, has to re- reduce social security, uh, social spending. Uh, that is, if you think of military as, guns, and uh, uh, spending as butter, therefore you have uh, this trade-off that more guns mean usually tends to mean less butter. In the context of the economic growth, this uh, trade-off is not a a significant issue since the economy is growing, budget revenues are growing, and so the government, um, the incumbent, is able to spend increased spending on the military and social spending at the same time. But it's under conditions of the economic stagnation or decline when there is an overall production um, uh, decline in that situation the incumbent is faced with a choice whether to prioritize guns over butter or uh, the other way around. if uh, guns or you know the proxy well, it's a proxy for military spending um, are prioritized that means that there is less resource available for household consumption and that uh, may present challenges for for the authorities. Of course, uh, the challenges, the, the um, problems uh, that are faced by the authorities are more pronounced in a democratic setting. But even in autocracies, we see there is sometimes a problem for the government uh, The uh, this associated social uh, frustration that comes uh, with the um, decrease in social spending and by some accounts uh, that one of the problems that brought down eventually the soviet union when overspending on the military on the uh, means of production and ended up underinvesting into social consumption and eventually contributed to the uh, collapse of the soviet system so therefore this sort of constraint should not be taken lightly even by autocrats however in recent years some skepticism emerged about whether these considerations may be applicable to the context of contemporary Russia and Russia's foreign policy consideration and military planning. Specifically, Anthony Scaramucci, then advisor to President Trump, argued back in 2017 that economic constraints, economic decline is not in any way a problem for Russians because Russians, if necessary, would eat snow which I know you have a lot of <laughs> in uh, medicine at the moment, um, uh, but uh, but they will not they will not uh, surrender to the economic pressure imposed on them uh, by the sanctions or any other economic pressure. So today, one of the uh, goals of today's presentation precisely is try to address this question: Is that true? Are Russians prepared to eat snow, uh, no matter what, uh, in order to support uh, their authority decisions? Uh, When we look at the contemporary literature on the topic, there are two streams of literature that try to address uh, this question. Uh, The first one I called rail around the flag uh, uh, stream of scholarship. The other one I uh, called audience cost, but this uh, certainly not very like, uh, it's just a name of this uh, streams of literature. I think they actually are much broader than these two concepts uh, entail. First, uh, the rail around the flag concept is that uh, in general, uh, overinvestment in the military, the m- military rhetoric, militaris- militarism in the country, actually may be beneficial for the authorities. Because by invoking the danger of external threats in terms of economic hardship, the authorities may be successfully shifting the public attention from uh, domestic economic issues on something else, right? Once this particular context, some external threats and challenges. And therefore, a small victorious war, for example, is always beneficial for an autocrat in this situation, allowing uh, him or her to shift the public focus uh, towards um, this militarization. From this perspective, increased uh, uh, militarization, militarism, uh, military narratives. I like belligerent uh, narratives might actually uh, be beneficial for the authorities and able to distract uh, the focus of the public from the uh, negative economic dynamic. Uh, in the Russian context, uh, there is some literature that certainly uh, points in that direction. Specifically in uh, in their uh, study, Sirotkin and Zavatskaya, I think it's also also published in post soviet Affairs, they show that uh, Russian respondents tended to evaluate uh, Putin's performance more favorably when, um, uh, together with economic priming, they also received information about Crimea annexation, priming on Russia's successful actions in Crimea. Essentially in this sense, uh, Crimea prime is able to overcome the the information about negative economic situation uh in the country so this evidence seems to be hinting towards uh, the presence of rally around the flag effect however there is also an alternative stream of literature that actually points us in a different uh direction uh the audience cost i call it audience cost although i think uh, there's actually a, this particular argument actually extends beyond uh, the audience. Audience calls a slightly different uh, idea, but essentially they communicate the same um, main uh, thought. That is, there is domestic public opinion constraints incumbent foreign policy discretion. Uh, This argument was primarily developed for democracies, um, which of course, as we know in the United States, there is certain limits to to the extent that uh, uh, the incumbent president can go uh, without essentially facing quite a non- serious uh, public backlash about the foreign policy actions, particularly when it comes to military interventions. Uh, in autocracies, of course the effect of public opinion is much on, on the incumbent uh, actions is much more mitigated, but it's not completely absent. And uh, there is significant literature uh, that also demonstrates that even in the autocratic political setting, the policy uh, success uh, is also somewhat conditioned on popular support. So public is not completely absent from autocrats consideration. In Russia, again, uh, there is quite a few studies that also seem to point uh, in that direction, uh, the existing significant, popular, uh, significant constraints on um, the discretion of Russian authorities, particularly economic constraints. Specifically, so the, we noticed that this study showed that there is a relationship between how a perception of the economic situation, personal of macroeconomic uh, situation, actual conditions, uh, perception of, um, Um, foreign policy by the actions by Russian authorities. Uh, Specifically, the studies, of course, focus primarily on the effect of Crimea annexation, and they show that um, those respondents in Russia who assess their personal economic situation as being um, negative, the dynamic of the personal income has been negative. Those actually uh, have to have actually evaluate they're less happy about um, uh, the effect of about the Crimean annexation. The effect of Crimean annexation, uh, when informed about, uh, reminded about Crimean annexation, they're actually uh, less, less responsive to it. Uh, also, another group of studies show that sell of a certain foreign policy and particular support for the authorities in Russia also declines as economic situation worsens. This uh, tends to suggest to us that even in Russia's uh, democratic political setting, there is uh, some uh, effect of economic situation on uh, perception of uh, Kremlin foreign policy by the Russian public. And of course, uh, those of you, many of you uh, who study Russia, know that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, they actually follow and monitor the polls to the extent, of course, that you can trust in polls in a correct setting, uh, fairly closely. Uh, since the beginning, polls and essentially the, the, the respond the reaction of Russian public to specific actions by the Kremlin authorities, play a significant role uh, in the Kremlin foreign policy. So these are the sort of questions that are certainly relevant in the Russian context. However, uh, the existing literature does not, primarily tends to emphasize uh, the impact of economic or the relationship between uh, perceptions of economy and uh, support for direct military intervention. Fewer studies uh, ask respondents about their more broader bro- broader social, uh, foreign policy preferences. Uh, this is unfortunate given uh, the existing foreign uh, policy context or international context in which direct uh, military interventions tend to be increasingly substituted with unconventional hybrid approaches where countries either fight the indirect proxy wars or try to influence each other's uh, domestic politics through economic and informational agendas. That means that uh, the foreign policy scope of actions of a given country goes far beyond uh, direct military intervention. And therefore it's also very important to understand how the public uh, responds to different foreign policy actions by the authorities conditioned by uh, perception of the economic situation now uh, to what extent these questions are even applicable to russia's domestic situation today Um, i would argue that they're quite applicable uh, because in the recent years we Russians have witnessed and experienced quite a significant decline in the real uh, disposable incomes. Uh, Here's some data of the dynamic on the real disposable incomes from 2014 uh, when Ukraine began, uh, Ukraine incursion uh, began up until 2018. And uh, unfortunately, in 2000, unfortunately for scholars, in 2018, uh, Russia's statistical agency, Rostat, uh, horrified probably uh, by the data in the by the dynamic of the real disposable incomes changed the methods of evaluating the real disposable incomes after which uh, they started growing suddenly uh, but of course uh, stopped being comparable to the previous dynamic uh, therefore here i'm showing and there, there's reason to believe that the new methodology is not particularly reliable uh, but uh, therefore i'm also primarily showing you uh, the graph until 2018. However, uh, in the last year, of course, this dynamic has continued. So even existing Rostat methodology and World Bank methodology, they still show a decline in real disposable income incomes in 2020 uh, because of the pandemics and associated lockdown that the Kremlin uh, introduced in spring uh, 2020, which eventually led to a record-breaking 13% decline in real disposable income in the first three quarters of 2020. So uh, this is just the uh, analysis that shows that the sort of questions I'm asking are still quite applicable to Russia's contemporary domestic political setting, given the decline of real disposable incomes over the last, uh, at this point, probably uh, seven years approximately. Uh, Existing sociological evidence also, uh, existing polls also somewhat point in the direction in which, uh, uh, essentially, this my argument goes. Uh, they, of course, do not directly causally measure the impact of the perceived economic situation on uh, perceptions or on policy preferences among Russians, but they do uh, provide some indication of those. Specifically, uh, Russian Academy of Science ran a survey in October 2014, back when uh, the economic situation was still fairly good and the relative disposable incomes have not been declining. Uh, The question asked, what must Russia achieve in order to be considered a great power? And respondents were asked to choose three options out of a set of 10 uh, and rank them in order of priority. In October 2014, this is by the way, right after also Ukraine, um, almost over two-thirds of Russians thought that Russia should be great power with powerful armed forces. First and foremost, this was the most popular option. Social justice uh, came third with only 47%, so less than half of respondents thought that social justice is important for Russia to be considered a great power. Russian Academy of Science then repeated the same survey in 2018, so four years later. After, as I have shown uh, in the previous slide, the real disposable incomes have been consistently declining for several years in a row. Let's see whether the policy priorities of Russians have changed by then. Uh, So as this slide shows, uh, there was a pronounced change. This time around, Russia should be a great power with powerful armed forces only received 49%, this time it was even below uh, 50%, so almost a 20% decline as compared to 2014. Uh, By contrast, social justice actually came first uh, this time around with 51% of respondents uh, believing that that is important. So there's a clear pronounced change in policy priorities among uh, Russians, which may or may not be linked to the experience of a decline in in real disposable incomes. Of course, this is just a survey that does not establish causality. And therefore, this is just some circumstantial evidence that points us in the direction of the question that we're asking in this uh, research. So, with that in mind, I actually ran my own experiment that allows us to address uh, the causality questions that is is hard to answer on regular survey setup. In the next part of this presentation, I'm going to uh, talk about the results of this experimental survey. This experimental survey uh, was run in uh, summer 2019, uh, thanks to the the support, the generous support of Carnegie Corporation in New York, and on the platform uh, of the Center for Independent Social Research. Uh, based in Saint Petersburg, one of the most respected polling uh, centers in Russia. Uh, the in, the survey was uh, run l- online, so there certainly are limitations uh, that we can d- discuss later. Um, the the setup was uh, as follows: uh, the respondents were divided into three uh, groups randomly, randomly assigned in those groups. Uh, the first and most important group, the negative uh, prime group received the information about uh, the negative tra- trends in Russia's economic economy. I call it uh, treatment, although, again, it's not entirely um, correct. The other two, uh, because the other groups also, the other group that also received uh, some treatment is called this control just because it's a comparison group. So, the first group of our interest will keep focus in this uh, presentation today, the negative group that received information about things getting worse in Russia today. And uh, here's how uh, the treatment looked like. Uh, Essentially, the treatment modeled an article in uh, Russia's uh, newspaper. The information was compiled uh, based on true evidence. Uh, but it was compiled the way that actually was uh, made the respondents think that uh, the situation in Russia was actually um, de- de- deteriorating economically. Uh, it says that Rostat reported on the situation in the Russian economy in the first quarter of 2019. Uh, the last three months have been generally negative for Russian economy. Economic growth slowed down to uh, one, one half percent in annual terms. And also that the disposable cash income of Russians in the first quarter of 2019 also fell for the fifth year in a row. All of that is true. Uh, and so was made uh respondent made essentially to guide respondents uh, into towards the negative uh, perception of the Russian economy. Uh, the two other groups of my respondents who I use this comparison um, were structured uh, received the following information. First, uh one of the uh, groups received no primary. So those were just respondents who were directly asked to answer a set of questions. Uh, respondents actually based on their perceived uh, situation. We, we thought that this would be essentially the ideal control group. but. It's also possible uh, that uh, respondents who live in Russia at the time, given the evidence that I provided, experienced negative impact of the economic situation already. So even if they're not provided any uh, information about the economy, they still might be thinking that the economy is doing worse, and therefore the impact of our treatment will not be as pronounced. So in order to control for that, I also introduced a positive prime group. This group was provided with information about positive trends in Russia's economy. As before, uh, all of the information was uh, uh, gathered from actual sources, so this is all true. But it was structured in a way that made respondents believe that the economy was doing well. So here's how uh, the positive treatment was structured. It looks absolutely identical uh, to the negative prime, to the negative treatment. And you will notice that it pretty much says the same. The only difference is that instead of the economic growth here, I refer to industrial production index, which grew, it's true, it grew back in 2019, and also uh, the real wages are referenced instead of uh, cash incomes that also grew in natural terms. So this actually allows us uh, to provide the respondents with completely true information, but at the same time prime them in the direction that is um, beneficial for this study's purposes. And the, as I mentioned before, the third group received no treatment at all. Subsequently, I comp- I asked my respondents a set of foreign policy questions and uh, compared the answers first in the negative group against the group that received no prime at all and in the negative treatment group against the group that received positive prime. Essentially to see if the respondents were going to be different in the way that um, is... Um, theoretically linked to my uh, hypothesis. There was also controls for uh, individual level uh, predictors such as gender age, education and incomes. Uh, errors were clustered in primary sampling unit and I said uh, I used a number of models for or, uh, for robustness checks, but here I present the results of the ordinary least square regression since the coefficient is the easiest to interpret. Just a reminder that, uh, again, my key hypothesis is that the respondents in negative socioeconomic treatment group will prioritize domestic economic issues over assertive foreign policy issues. Now, uh, first, uh, let us see the result uh, whether the treatment worked at So this slide shows the result of the manipulation check. Uh, the question uh, was asked at the very end of the survey. Um, and it asks respondents, how do you see the dynamics of the economic situation in Russia? So uh, there is four possible options in high is associated to a better uh, perception of Russia's economy. Uh, the graph, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with this uh, graph, I will just quickly explain that uh, the red line, uh, the red vertical line uh, refers to essentially uh zero. Uh, and, uh, um, the points blue and the red one on the uh, on the graph they refer uh, to the difference between the respondents in the negative group and the positive group so for the difference to be significant the um, confidence interval uh, the horizontal lines surrounding these dots on the graph should not be crossing the red vertical line so so far on this graph you see that both uh, blue and the red dots are are significant, both coefficients are significant. And what do those coefficients refer to? So the blue dotted line corresponds to comparison of the group with negative prime against the group that received no treatment at all. The red line corresponds to the comparison of the group with negative prime compared to the group with positive prime. So as you see from this graph, the result is exactly as one would expect. Uh, so the blue line, uh, the, the blue uh, the blue dot and surrounding confidence interval is the difference between uh, the group with negative prime to the group with no prime. You see that the assessment of the economic situation has significantly worsened following treatment exposure, but not as strongly as it has declined after... Uh, as com- when we compare negative uh, the group and uh, the negative group as with um, the group that received positive prime, there they affect the effect, the difference is were more pronounced. So, just to conclude, their treatment worked in predicted ways, and uh, respondents in the negative group assess the economic situation much more negatively than those who were uh, in the positive uh, treatment group or received no uh, treatment whatsoever. Now, uh, subsequently, I asked my respondents a number of questions that uh, Russia's polling companies uh, usually asked with regards to uh, trying to assess their foreign policy preferences. Specifically, here I rely on the data by Levada Center. Uh, The first group refers to explicit uh, comparison of uh, militarist, more militarist uh, foreign policy preferences, as opposed to more. social spending. First, uh, respondents were asked to what extent they agreed with the following statement. We must spend more on defense, even if it can create some problems for our economic development. So clearly a militaristic um, statement and ex- explicitly postulating this trade-off between guns and butter. Again, as before, there were four options for respondents to ch- choose from um, um, uh, from fully uh, fully disagree- uh Complete disagreement to complete agreement. Uh, the second question uh, asks them to agree whether Russia's internal problems now are more important now are more important than any external threats. So it's the opposite uh, argument in some ways. And ultimately, whether they would prefer Russia to be first and foremost a strong power which other countries respect and fear, or a country with high living standards, even though it may not be one of the most powerful countries in the world. Uh, just to uh, remind you that these are just the general regular questions that Levada Center asks when assessing foreign policy priorities among the Russian population. So this graph shows uh, the results of the analysis. Uh, the top uh, two horizontal lines refer to the first question. We must spend more on defense, even if it can create some problems for our economic development. And as you can see, uh, there is a significant decrease in the number of respondents who thought uh, that the, the who agreed with the statement. So the, the coefficients allocated on the left of this vertical um, uh, zero line. The effect is actually interestingly enough, in this case, more pronounced when we compare the group uh, with negative treatment as as opposed to groups that received no treatment at all. So in this case, it's significant, uh, but clearly as comparison, the blue and red line demonstrates, the effect is similar for both uh, comparison, negative versus no treatment and negative versus positive treatment. The second question asked whether Russia's internal problems now are more important than any external threats. And looking at the graph on your right, you see that internal problems um, seems to gain more uh, priority for Russians, so the for respondents, again, according to our expectations. The number of respondents who answered that they uh, could tend to agree with this claim, uh, that Russians' internal problems now are more important than any external threats, has actually increased. And the effect more pronounced when we compare group with negative uh, treatment uh, to the group with positive treatment, as expected. And ultimately, uh, the third dichotomy, would you prefer Russia to be first and foremost a country with high-level standard or a military strong country that other countries respect and fear, maybe, although not, uh, albeit one uh, with a low standard of living? Here, again, the results are as expected. The number of respondents who learned about that the economic, uh, economic situation is doing worse Sub- subsequently uh, tended to agree more with the statement uh, that Russia needs to be a country with high level living standards primarily rather than <clears throat> a military-strong uh, country that other countries re- uh, respect and fear. So overall, as this uh, graph postulates, the effects everywhere go and predict it um, as expected. Uh, and that backs uh, my hypothesis that the um, uh econo- negative perception of the economy actually tend to shift foreign policy preferences of Russians from um, militarism and emphasis on military spending towards more concerns about Russia's domestic uh, situation and increased social spending. Now, uh, in an order to rally the public around the uh, to to rally uh, the public around the flag. The Kremlin in recent years also actively promote Russia's great power narratives. So Russia is a great mil- a power that's able to stand up to the United States on the international stage. And uh, the great power narratives are generally intrinsically linked to or this Kremlin militarism. Uh, therefore, in the second part of my research, I also introduced a set of a group of questions that have to do with respondents' perceptions of Russia's great power st- uh, status. Again, uh, the questions were primarily taken from uh, Levada Center, Russia's leading independent opinion poll um, uh, company uh, about uh, whether respondents thought Russia today was a great power. Um, So the first question asked directly, do you think Russia today is a great power? The second question asked, is it more important for a great power to have a developed modern economy or powerful armed forces? So again, implicitly postulated the same trade-off guns to butter. And ultimately, the third question I used directly from the uh, survey by Russian Academy of Science that I referenced before, that asked respondents to select three uh, top choices that are necessary for Russia to achieve in order to be considered a great power. So it's exactly the same setup as Russia's Academy of, uh, of Sciences. Um, designed back 2014 and 2018, uh, and the results are presented earlier. Let's see. So, uh, how did our uh, treatment influence our respondents' answers to these questions? So, the first one about this uh, great power status uh, is the results on the graph on your right demonstrate. First of all. An, uh, perception of declining or worsening economic situation in the country significantly de- decreased uh, respondents believe that Russia today is a great power you see the effect uh, is very strong and pronounced particularly when we compare the assessment of those respondents uh, in negative treatment as opposed to those in positive treatment the red horizontal uh, line at the top of the graph second when it comes to uh, what a great power should have uh, whether it should be a uh, powerful armed forces or developed modern economy when uh, the, uh, this trade-off is postulated this way you see that uh, the treatment the negative treatment significantly increases the number of respondents the number of responses that a developed modern economy is more important uh, for a great power this actually suggests that um, no matter how much uh, the kremlin You know, promotes this great power rhetoric and tries to rally the population around the flag, Uh, when the economy um, is uh, doing worse, it's much harder to convince uh, Russians uh, that Russia is still a great power, uh, given that they observe uh, the uh, economic situation and it seems to be playing a role in assessment of Russia's great power status. Ultimately, let's see how uh, did our treatment influence the answers to the Russian uh, Academy of Science uh, survey that I referenced before. So here it's a little bit probably harder uh, to read, given that there's a number of options, but overall, uh, again, the impact of my treatment uh, is exactly in expected uh, direction. You notice that uh, there is an increase in responses that developed modern economy and well-being of citizens is more important, uh, although these effects are not uh, statistically significant. But most importantly, uh, there is a significant impact when it comes to uh, the answers about uh, military. So the number of uh, responses that powerful military is important has declined significantly as you see by the horizontal line uh, on uh, the left of the vertical red line. And also, that uh, there's also significantly fewer respondents who answered uh, that Russia should be regulating international conflicts in order to be considered a great power uh, among those respondents who perceived economic situation as doing worse, or who were shown this treatment about uh, negative, uh, negative trends in Russia's economic, economy. So therefore, again, this is very much consistent with the argument uh, that in under conditions of the economic strain, Russians are much less uh, supportive of their assertive uh, military narratives and much uh, less likely to follow these great power narratives that are actively promoted by the Kremlin in order to rally the public around the flag. Uh, this, This evidence seems to be going precisely in line with our hypothesis. And ultimately, let me conclude with some of the summary of the key findings and uh, the main implications. So first of all, as the analysis above has demonstrated, the respondents who received negative economic prime uh, tended to less uh, likely to support increased military spending by the Russian authorities and less likely to consider Russia a great power. Simultaneously, Uh, The respondents in the group with negative economic prime were also more likely to believe that the Russian state should prioritize domestic economic agenda over assertive foreign policy agenda, so prioritize butter over guns, and more likely to believe that uh, the the authorities should prioritize countries' economic well-being, citizens' economic well-being, over military might in most cases in line with expectations uh, the differences was was uh, the differences was stronger for positive uh, group as compared to negative uh, treatment than uh, neutral or the group without tri- uh, prime as opposed to a ne- uh, group with negative prime now uh, talking about implications of these findings as i suggested uh, we should probably think about what it means for ongoing uh, situation in belarus a lot of analysts have postulated that, uh, given the unrest and protests in Belarus, the Kremlin may be tempted to sort of repeat uh, something similar that we have seen in Ukraine by uh, for military intervention and trying essentially to perhaps, I don't know, annex parts of Belarus or at least to restore order uh, with for military means. Uh, I argue that, given the presented evidence and continuously worsening economic situation in Russia over the recent years, these actions are unlikely to be uh, very favorable for the Kremlin domestically. Um, the respondents today in Russia today, because of the economic problems, do not seem to be very supportive of a certain and military of a certain foreign policy uh, by the Kremlin, and therefore, given uh, the evidence that are presented uh, here these actions may actually um, end up hurting uh, the Kremlin rather than be anyhow beneficial for the Kremlin. That may be maybe one of the reasons why, until recently, the Kremlin support for Lukashenko was quite indirect, uh, not quite, uh, not very pronounced. There was no any, any open military support. And of course, just to conclude that, of course, there are significant limitations of this study. It's an online uh, study, and we know that significant shares of uh, Putin supporters, of all the age groups, that are, they are not very active online. So this study may be actually um, biased towards a particular social group that's already less less uh, supportive of the Kremlin, of the Kremlin's authorities. Uh, next, um, it's um, the many of the questions postulate direct uh, military versus economic tradeoff. While in reality, of course, uh, citizens are never asked, uh, are never offered this trade-off directly, so they may not be realizing that Crimea annexation. For example comes with uh, direct economic costs and therefore they might be more supportive of crimea annexation in some context since this trade-off is not explicitly postulated therefore it's recommended that future studies take these limitations into account and perhaps try to uh, come up with designs that um, essentially acknowledge uh, these limitations and of course ultimately i have not uh, looked at the relative impact of economic versus uh really run right of the flag effects in the sense that it would be interesting to do something where economic treatment is at the same time followed by some kind of uh, uh, hawkish geopolitical treatment something that has to do like assertive or criminal foreign policy to see whether the impact of negative economic uh, treatment may be overcome by more um, assertive uh I don't know, foreign policy, but by the rally around the flag, uh, the flag effect in a uh, conjoint experimental design. And I will stop here. Thank you very much for your attention.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Maria, for a very interesting presentation. Uh, I really like how it sort of goes against the grain of the uh, sort of Russians will eat snow perspective, yeah. uh, which is uh, certainly something we hear a lot of in commentary about Russia today. Uh, Well, okay, so now I will open the floor for uh, questions or comments or discussion, and uh, please indicate uh, that you're interested in asking a question by using the raise hand function, or, you know, since we don't have a queue going yet, uh, you can just jump in. I'll give people a second to figure that out. Um, um, Well, maybe I'll get things started with my own uh, questions. So. Um, as you know, so a couple of things about your, your, um, whole approach, um, strike me as interesting. And and one, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, do you, so with this technique, so you identify the statistically significant effect with the treatment. Um, and I, you know, I asked some technical questions about, uh, how you, you know, the, the regression model. So, so just a, one technical question. Is that just, is the regression results you showed us? So that's controlling for these other. Uh, factors or okay um so how then you know how would you address the question of whether or not these effects are large enough to actually make any difference politically so you know that's a sort of a critique that's been raised against these experimental these survey experiment approaches okay so you've shown that but you know why why should we believe that uh these kinds of effects actually matter for um you know matter politically for you know decisions that the russian government makes
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, Thank you so much. So certainly, of course, on the broader level, I don't think there's a fundamental way, unfortunately, to address this question. We just, uh, we can show that these effects exist. So you shouldn't be, uh, you know, by default, assuming that Russians will continue, will eat snow no matter what. And there is a limitation. Uh, But it's true that the magnitude of the discovered effects fluctuates. uh, It's not very big. Uh, It fluctuates between three and six percent change of the range of the variables case. And most results are only significant at 90 percent confidence level. That is because of the Internet. um, In my experience, Internet based uh, studies data actually uh, limit a little bit the magnitude of the effects. I also have done a number of um, uh, uh, face-to-face experiments. In those situations, the effects actually seem to be tend to be more pronounced, uh, probably uh, because it's uh, I don't because of the essentially uh, the way that people tend to probably believe more of what you present to them in person. So, therefore, that certainly um, this uh, this is one of the unclear limitations. But at the same time, um, and there is no way to say to what extent essentially. the the real size of the effect. However, we do see by a number of uh, side indications and specifically by the survey evidence, that's also of course uh, not causal, but it does show us quite a pronounced size of these effects. Uh, specifically, uh, the Russian Academy of Science service uh, right, uh, would be one example. Uh, but there is a number of studies that have done uh, the whole uh, comparative analysis of these um, trends on the survey level. And they actually show quite a pronounced uh, change. So in Russian Academy of Science, for example, I mentioned there is 20% uh, decline in the number of responses for favored uh, mili- stronger military is after these 4 years of course it may not be just the effect of the economy it may be cumulative effect of other problems in 2018 specifically uh, there was this reform incredibly unpopular reform of um, the uh, retirement age increase that certainly influenced the um, uh perception of priorities among the russian population but uh nonetheless when you combine this survey evidence and i cite more of that in my paper uh with uh, this causal evidence it does show you uh there is a limit and of course you can also look at the actions of the russian authorities that tend to be shifting uh, towards the emphasis of the social issues the priority of social issues at least verbally as uh the years go as the economy is doing worse and I think it would be an interesting analysis uh, to um, to do. Um, I, I've done it in one of my other papers, asking, answering different question, uh, looking at the public statements uh, by the criminal authorities. So for example, by taking federal assembly analysis, uh, federal assembly uh, speeches by Putin, for example, over the last 10 years, and by focusing on how many times he mentions certain issues, uh, topics. Uh, so it can be military, it may be a social security, social spending. Uh, that will be another, you know, evidence that will show you that, uh, at least publicly, the priority of the Russian authorities tend to shift uh, along with the, as, as the salience of certain issues, also changes for the Russian population.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, I would like to see that analysis, because, of course, you know, many observers say, well, the Russian government doesn't really care, you know, what the public thinks. I mean, Putin's rating is this factor, but aside from that, uh, so that's uh, also another anti-conventional wisdom perspective. Okay, uh, we see, uh, I see that Natalia Savileva has uh, a question. Uh, Natalia, go ahead.
3: Oh, yes, I have a question. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the great presentation. And my question is about this 2014 poll. I'm wondering when, when exactly they ask those questions, because I think that there is a huge difference if they make, made this survey, for example, in January, before annexation of Crimea, or like in April, or in June, when in Ukraine it was like a real war. And I'm wondering about your thoughts. So you check uh, this one variable. Uh, economic situation, right? And I'm wondering, like, for example, if you would add this second variable, which we had in 2014, is actually, which is actually like a real like conflict, military conflict, which is really, which is very close to Russian borders and important for Russian people because this is like post-Soviet republic and what which was mass like covered very, very. Um, i don't know massively <laughs> by russian media so which result what what would uh so in your case battle one right but i'm wondering if uh, with the in a in, in the same circumstances when we have like economic decline but at the same time some disturbances in the uh in this in other state which is close to russia right or like a state of war or whatever like uh, relationships between Russia and being became more became worse, and the Russian media started covering that in a sense, like okay, we should close our borders now. US is really aggressive over us. I'm wondering, like in this case, if we add this variable, uh, what would be the result? How do
1: you think, Natalia Just to clarify, by the the additional variable to add, uh, do you mean? the something specifically happening in the region near, near to Russia, the variable that you recommended. Could you clarify that? Yeah,
3: or uh, just any sort of um, any possibility of aggression toward Russia, because in case of Ukraine there was a conflict, but there was also perceived like an aggression toward like Russia, right? And that was important uh so for example if we add this variable what, what do you think will happen battle mm-hmm. one or gun one will
1: will win yeah so first of all thank you very much for uh interesting and uh, perceptive question. So, first of all, you're certainly right about this Russian uh, Russian Academy of Science uh, question, and I I do mention that it was uh, run in October 2014, so certainly uh, increased militarism may be Mm -hmm. also associated to the impact. That's why, precisely why uh, I've done the experimental survey, right, is that to establish causality uh, between uh, these two factors that's independent on the influence of other uh, interviewing variables, such as, I don't know, be it retirement age increase in case of 2018, or uh, the Ukrainian question in the case of 2014. That is just indicative of the priorities of the Russian population uh, to show you the trends. Uh, but there is also a number of other uh, recent surveys that uh, Levada survey, for example, uh, keeps asking the same questions over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, they s- certainly notice over the last years, since 2018-19, Uh, The growing belief among Russians uh, that the government should be first and foremost concerned about the problems of declining living standards, rising prices and degradation of social welfare instead of war in syria and confrontation with the West and ukraine and this has been actually a consistent trend in levada studies as well i mentioned that i bring the, i refer to that evidence in my own article but there's also a great study by sherlock professor sherlock who has done very similar analysis to actually uh, bringing up much many more polls and he primarily relies on polls without any experiments uh but he shows the same trends essentially my article, my experience the contribution of my experiments is only to show that evidence uh, the, the same the same relationship causally, uh, because the evidence has already been provided by a large number of uh, different surveys. Now, on your point about the aggression to Russia, certainly a great point, but uh, the problem is that this is all uh, constructed by um, the the Kremlin uh, propaganda, right? So we ultimately uh, this is what the Kremlin um, tells uh, to the Russian people. And uh, we see that uh, over the years, Russians, uh, under decline in living standards, tend to be less likely to believe to those narratives. Uh, For example, again, Levada surveys show that there is a significant demand to improve our relationship with the West in the recent years, despite the fact that, of course, the official narratives have remained constructed around this continuous Western aggression uh, against Russia. Uh, that is of course not just the impact of the overall changing priorities among the russian population but also growing importance of uh, internet uh and the role of the essentially media sources fewer russians have now uh, are now relying on uh, state tv channels as the main information source and therefore or more of them a few of them actually tend to be um, subject to uh, the official Kremlin narratives. So yes, of course, I unfortunately, I didn't have that particular variable in my research, but I'm fairly certain that um, the effects that we are discovering here, they're uh, independent of uh, the way the official narratives, uh, the official Kremlin narratives construct uh, the problem.
2: Okay, thank you, Natasha, for the question. Uh, so we have a question uh, in the chat uh, from Emma Baldwin, whose microphone is not working. So uh, I'm happy to read her question. And that is, do you think that if Russia's economy were to improve, might there be a return to prioritizing guns over butter? Or do you think that this is a long term trend that you have down?
1: Thank you very much, Emma. That's an excellent question. Uh, the findings show that, unfortunately, the very opposite is also true. Right? Notice how I uh, uh, intentionally compared negative prime versus positive prime, uh, and uh, uh, and also negative prime versus neutral prime. And the fact that these uh, two primes, the two comparisons, always go in the same direction, it actually suggests that the positive prime works. Precisely in the opposite way. So respondents who, are, uh, who see the Russian economic situation as more positive. Yes, it's true. They tend to make less emphasis on the economic issues and therefore there might be higher willingness to uh, agree with um, uh, assertive militaristic uh, narratives. However, Uh, Given the current uh, trends in Russia domestically and the international political context, uh, the role of sanctions, it's not particularly likely that Russia's economy will fundamentally change its uh, dynamic in near future. And of course, in addition to all of this, there's uh, precisely the same answer as I gave to Natalia earlier. Uh, We also observed since um, 2017-2018, growing polarization among the Russian population, when it comes uh, to media consumption uh, sources, to media sources, uh, well, it used to be that, uh, first of all, about 80% of Russians relied on state-funded TV channels for as the main information source. And even those who did not rely on those sources for the main information, those who relied on internet sources, uh, they still showed very similar kind of answers. There was not particular differences in the answers. In recent years, this trend has changed. In recent years, we observed very pronounced polarization among those groups uh, that continue to rely on federal TV channels as the main information source, and a growing number of those who rely on social media and internet as the main information source. And those who rely on internet primarily, uh, they tend to actually become much more negative in their assessment of the situation in the country and also much uh, less uh, pro-Kremlin in their political preferences. So given the combination of these uh, two factors, I wouldn't be particularly worried about, uh, you know, this military, uh, strong militarism uh, narratives, essentially gaining a lot of ground with the Russian population in the near future.
2: Okay. Great. Um, any other questions uh, out there? Comments. Um, yes, uh, Yoy, please.
4: Hi, thanks. Um yeah, I I thank you so much for the presentation and um it's nice, nice to see this work. I guess I just wanted to ask you about some um implications, which is um On the one hand, the findings are kind of, um, I guess expected in the sense that if you give a negative prime of the economy, people might think, you know, you have to do something about the economy. So in a way it's expected. Uh, On the other hand, it seems like the contribution is in terms of suggesting that, um, that there's a limit to, foreign policy or um, external action, that the economy is kind of a limit, not just on foreign policy, but to some extent on the government. So I guess I just wanted to press you a little bit on the implications of the economic constraints on government actions, um, because it's not just um, foreign policy or wars that are con- that are in contrast with the economy, but also the corruption, the lack of modernization, And frankly, just the staying power of the regime that if, I mean, you could say, do you want Putin or do you want the regime? And so somebody might say, you know, the economy is going to be a constraint on his power. So I guess they just thought maybe you could speak a little bit to the broader implications of this economic constraint. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much. That's an interesting question. I will engage a little bit further. Uh, studies that I've done in answering that. Uh, so uh, I think a lot would have would depend on how you see the um, uh, kind of the, the nature of uh, the regime autocratic regime that's currently um, uh, has been formed in Russia. Uh, I would define uh, this regime, and I uh, actually wrote about it, as neo-patrimonial uh, regime, following the argument by uh, scholars like Henry Hale, for example, uh, precisely because it's a personalistic regime uh, which is based on purchasing of loyalty, of uh, the, or establishing lo- long-term loyalty of social of the elites and broader population through redistribution of the rent uh, that the regime receives primarily from the, uh, um, of course, sell of the natural resources um, uh, that are essentially uh, for, of the country. And uh, such regimes, and actually I'm currently uh, doing a project, very interesting project um, about that with Kirill Rogov. Uh, These uh, regimes have a very interesting uh, dynamic. We find the majority of such uh, regimes uh, concentrated is in either post-Soviet countries or in Africa. Uh, I don't think, but uh, it used to be popular to compare uh, Russia's uh, personalistic regime to some extent Latin American uh, autocratic regimes in 20th century. I do not think uh, they're the closest uh, comparison, to be honest, um, uh, because they actually used to be much more institutionalized than the Russian regime is. But the existing evidence from post service space in Africa shows us, uh, allows us sort of um, to make certain, draw certain conclusions about uh, Russia's regime future. Uh, So the regimes actually are quite um, um, resistant and robust, and they tend to survive a lot of um, short-term economic crisis quite well. What is uh, deleterious is the long-term continuous uh, stagnation, when over the long-term the resources that the regime uh, uses to purchase loyalty of the elites and the population, uh, they um, essentially shrink. And at the same time, the political protest that usually emerges in uh, bigger cities, uh, more, more more educated, um, usually more informed, better informed, uh, is joined by the economic uh, protest emerging on the uh, kind of smaller, uh, more 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 smaller cities um uh, the areas of the country that are primarily hit uh, by the economic stagnation uh this is void essentially in the long term uh, is particularly territories and actually the real uh, danger uh, comes from uh, the, the the ability of the opposition to do, political opposition to incorporate in the protest the economic um uh frustration from uh, the broader country of course uh, in russia this is uh, fairly far, very distant scenario at the very least and uh um i have to say that the crown very much very well understands the limitation the policies of essentially rent redistribution distribution i've always uh, kind of introduced precisely at the moment when the regime starts uh, feeling a little bit threatened like for example in the late 2020 uh putin in his um uh i think was um uh, um his uh media appearance when our conversation with journalists uh he promised um, another essential social payments to russians and there's rumors right now that in front of the uh protest that uh, emerged in russia in late january uh there was also rumors that the kremlin will increase the spending uh once again and so far the economic block uh, in the kremlin was one of the actually the, the best um even not just in russia but uh in quite a actually in the world, it's a a very good economic team. So they will ensure that uh, the regime has resources that will allow uh, to continue purchasing loyalty, at least in the short term. But in the long term, of course, there are constraints and there is growing resentment that we see um, in the country, certainly already accumulating uh, this protest in the big capitals, but also increasingly spreading into the uh, regions as fewer people see their future honestly um, under the current political system. But of course, uh, the the end is nowhere near, and um, as we also know from the literature on comparative uh, autocratic regimes, personalistic regimes usually tend to end with the uh, death of their leaders, rather than uh, in any other way. So, not it's not a very um, it's not a very optimistic forecast, I guess.
2: Not very optimistic. Well, uh, so so I a follow up to that question. Um, and that is, I'm curious about your thoughts on, uh, on uh, the following. So, you know, you refer to views of the authority, support for the leader. But um, in Russia, of course, there's, you know, there's Putin and then there's the rest of the government. And people's attitudes towards the two aren't always consistent. And, you know, we do see that there's a lot of evidence, survey evidence, that uh, people, so, uh, while support for Putin has been consistently high, support for other government institutions have been consistently negative. Moreover, uh, some of the focus groups that I've done in Russia, though most recently, I guess this is still a while ago now, is 2016, I heard a lot of Russians say, well, Putin, is, he's not responsible for the economy. That's the job of the prime minister. And the government, Putin's responsible for foreign policy and Putin's brought Russia off her knees. And so we love Putin, but well, yeah, the economy is a mess, but that's not his fault. So uh, how would you factor that into the political consequences of your findings. I mean, if you know, if the authorities themselves are sort of bifurcated into two different halves, one of them which takes the heat for the economy, the other which gets, you know, how does that uh, does that affect you know the implications of your findings for the Russia's political trajectory?
1: That's an excellent question. Thank you very much, Ted, and certainly uh, reflects the knowledge of, uh, again, Russia's political culture, so to speak. Uh, however, I have to say that uh, in very recently, over the last two years, perhaps, uh, and this is also um, relevant to the other project that we did with Levada Center, the so-called Modernizing Russia that uh, Catherine um, kindly mention, mentioned when introducing me, uh, we actually find that this um, uh, insulation, so to speak, from which Putin benefited, benefited over the long run, uh, started to uh, evaporate. So it's true, historically, uh, essentially, in Russia's personalistic um, uh, regime, uh, Putin was somewhat insulated from the criticism, uh, it's, uh, as uh, usually uh, formulated in the sentence, the tsar is good, but boyars are bad. Right, so uh, Russians always blame the officials, the elites in the Kremlin, but not the top father-like figure of the president. Uh, That uh, certainly has been the trend, and especially after Crimea annexation, which delivered to the Kremlin the so-called Teflon effect uh, to the rating of the to Putin's rating. That is, uh, it actually for a couple of years became completely insulated of any. um developments in the country was uh, so high and absolutely absolutely invincible to some extent Um, however in the recent years we see this effect has been evaporating and uh recent protests actually has have also revealed this change that putin stopped uh, being the untouchable god like figure uh he used to be in the russian political system and that is a combination of several uh factors um there's of course a a sense of the spread and fatigue after all, that's one leader ruling the country for 20 years. It's just, uh, it's um, honestly, he's <laughs> nearing almost uh, may become one of the longest-lasting. It's not the longest-lasting ruler uh, in Russia's history. Uh, it's um, uh, it's quite abnormal, even by Russia's personalistic, uh, by standards of Russia's per- historically personalistic autocratic uh, system. Uh, second of all, there's also. Um, Uh, A growth and generational change. Uh, We right now are witnessing coming of age of a newer generation that um, younger Russians aged um, below 25 approximately, whose... Essentially, all life was under Putin and who are much more westernized and uh, modernized, if you will, in their preferences. Uh, One of our studies actually with Levada Center precisely focuses on how this particular group of Russians is different from uh, the older generations. And uh, for this particular group, Putin feels very much, his his behavior feels quite um, honestly obsolete, if I may use this word, since uh, he just appears... Very much like a grandfather figure and does not seem to relate to uh, their demands and preferences and even his rhetoric. Feels uh, very different from what they're used to, particularly given that they're the Internet uh, generation, they're, they have their own styles and practices and behaviors, and he certainly um, is not. Uh, so it's actually very interesting to observe this change because I remember back in early 2000 uh, when Putin just appeared on the Russian political, scene. he was considered to be extremely cool and particularly his behavior and demeanor certainly certainly was very much uh, appreciated among uh, broader Russian population. And of course, the third factor is just the Washington economic situation and spread and perceptions. That the authorities are not uh, really delivering that inevitably also uh, reflects on Putin, and I have to mention that the position in Russia also has done a lot to contribute to this perception <clears throat> quite successfully. For example, uh, Navalny's movie about Putin's palace certainly contributes to this destruction of Putin's like this uh, image, uh, this almost uh, sacralized image that has been uh, constructed over the years. So I think that. Uh, we're actually witnessing right now the erosion of Putin' uh, support of his particular, like, personalistic image of this uh, invincible God uh, father figure, God-like figure, and um, this is also reflected in the polls. Uh, Putin's uh, uh, trust rating—there's actual number of ratings, but I think it's trust rating that's one of the lowest over uh, the 20 years of his rule. So, in this sense, I, guess, I think we are witnessing something new in the dynamic of Russia's um,
2: regime. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that's a very interesting, lots of food for thought. And I also put in a plug for those uh, reports you mentioned on modernizing Russia. I've uh, had a look at them. There's very interesting material, very topical, very up to date. And uh, again, sort of cuts against the grain of a lot of sort of received wisdom about contemporary Russian society. So uh, that brings us to the end of our scheduled time. I want to uh, thank Maria very much for a very informative uh, presentation and for interesting discussion following. Um, And I want to thank the audience for being a good attentive audience and for your questions. And thus we conclude the session. So bravo, thank you. Thank you very much.